I'm Raphael. I'm Kirk. And, and this, this is, is The Housing Problem. This episode of The Housing Problem is all about New York City's public housing. How do we protect it? How do we invest in the buildings? How do we keep hundreds of thousands of people in their homes and living in decent, safe, and affordable housing? I'm Rafael Sestero. I'm the CEO of the Community Preservation Corporation. I've been in the affordable housing industry for nearly uh, for over 30 years, and I spent time uh, as the commissioner of the Department of Housing Preservation and Development. And I'm Kirk Goodrich. I'm president of Monadnock Development. I spent many years financing affordable housing, and for the last decade, I've been a developer of affordable housing, and I've been doing affordable housing in one form or another for more than 30 years myself. Together, we have over 60 years of experience in affordable housing in New York City. We've been friends for 30 years. We come from completely different backgrounds, but together, uh, we've come to the same place. We've spent our entire careers trying to make New York City more affordable, trying to make neighborhoods better, and make sure that every New Yorker has a decent, safe, and affordable place to live. You know, the challenges we face in providing affordable housing in New York City are similar to what people face across the United States and all over the world, but there are things about New York City that are unique, and really, that's what the Housing Problem podcast is all about. The Housing Problem is really going to look at the imbalance in our city's housing stock. Uh, a large part of that being our public housing, which is the single most important and crucial affordable housing stock that we have in New York City. It serves the very lowest income New Yorkers, and it has a huge problem right now. It has a lack of resources that has been going on for decades, and the, the New York City Housing Authority is struggling to find real solutions. We have over 400,000 New Yorkers living in roughly 174,000 affordable public housing units. From towers in the sky to townhouses and more, today those homes are in deep physical distress with an estimated need of, of $40 billion just to fix them. There, the long-term maintenance are big issues, but there are other issues facing public housing, including how that integrates with neighborhoods and, and how people feel safe in their homes. What, what's terrible about this problem is there really haven't been many solutions through all the decades. But in 2013, President Obama passed Rental Assistance Demonstration Program, also known as RAD, which has really been the most reliable solution to date. And really what RAD is, is inviting for-profit developers, nonprofit developers, and managers to take over public housing authority properties, but with a more reliable financing stream that allows them to borrow money and invest equity to make repairs. And so the RAD program is one solution, but there are many others we're going to talk about with our guest today. And all of the other issues, the bureaucracy, the red tape, the struggle to just get simple maintenance uh, fixed are things that the New York City Public Housing Authority needs to address. They're things that the Rental Assistance Demonstration Program tries to address through the use of private managers. Through all of this, the New York City Housing Authority remains control and remains in ownership of all of the units. There are solutions out there. There are solutions that are within our reach, but we need to have a, a deep and honest conversation about those solutions going forward, and that's what we're going to try to do today on the housing problem. Well, before we delve into solutions, let's talk about just some general stats, which kind of gives an idea of how vast the New York City Housing Authority system is. 
So citywide, when you look at public housing and everything under the jurisdiction of, of NYCHA, we have 335 developments and just under 178,000 apartments. Incredible. There are a total of almost 550,000 residents who live in these buildings, and NYCHA is home to 1 in 15 New Yorkers. In the 15th Congressional District, which our guest today represents, there are 60 NYCHA developments, more than 30,000 apartments, 70,000 people live in NYCHA apartments in Congressional District 15. And, it's incredible. Yeah, and you know, Kirk, what, what's, what's, what's so uh, painful for so many people about the units owned by the New York City Housing Authority, also known as NYCHA, is that for decades and decades, the federal government um, has failed to deliver the capital resources necessary. Public housing is funded by the federal government, both uh, in terms of the rents that tenants uh, pay and the housing authority collects, as well as the capital repairs that are needed. I think one of the things that people fail to realize is how important operating subsidies are, not only to keeping the properties improved and, and operating well, but to enable capital improvements. And, and that's been one of the, the big problems that we've seen in the New York Housing Authority properties. The RAD program, Rental Assistance Demonstration, is meant to actually address that problem. To date, we've seen about 14,000 apartments converted to RAD. There's another 20,000 in the pipeline. And so the New York City Housing Authority has gone all in on the RAD program, but it hasn't been without uh, controversy. It hasn't been without concerns from advocates and activists who care a lot. And that's one of the things we want to talk about today. Yeah. And I think, Kirk, that really sums up what uh, we're hoping to do here today on the housing problem is really talk about the experience, the lived experience of residents in public housing, and then talk about how the rental assistance demonstration program and other solutions can be a big part of, of, of how public housing returns to be the high quality affordable housing that we need. And, and I have to tell you, I can't imagine us having a better guest um, on our show today. He really is um, uniquely positioned to talk about the full breadth of issues, both living in public housing, but also as a policymaker, trying to ha find solutions for the challenges facing public housing. Um, and we couldn't be luckier to have uh, the U.S. representative from the great 15th district in New York City, one of the most densely populated districts with public housing in the city and in the country. Congressman Richie Torres is, is a tremendous advocate for public housing and for his community, and we're thrilled to have him on the show today. Before we welcome the congressman, I want folks to understand how important he's been to policy in New York City in terms of the housing authority. So former chair of the Public Housing Committee on the City Council, where he sponsored Right to Council 2.0 and expanded lead-based paint testing and reporting requirements. In Congress, he introduced a bill in June 2021 that would allow PHAs, public housing authorities, to use the design-build construction system for renovation, streamlining the renovation process in housing authority properties, which allows improvements to happen really fast. And he's been supportive of the rental assistance demonstration program in the past as a city councilman, and we trust more recently as a congressman. Congressman Torres, welcome. We're really happy to have you join us today. And we'd like you to start by talking about growing up in the housing authority property you did in the Bronx. 
So I'm indebted to the New York City Housing Authority. You know, I would not be where I am today. I would not be in the United States Congress were it not for public housing and the stability it gave me and my family. Having said that, you know, growing up, I did live through the impact of federal disinvestment from public housing. As you know, public housing has been so savagely underfunded at the hands of the federal government that it has a capital need of $40 billion in counting. And so I was among the hundreds of thousands of people who grew up in conditions of mold and mildew, leaks and lead without reliable heat and hot water in the winter. Uh, I, I tell people that I, I grew up in a public housing development right across the street from Trump Golf Course. And as the golf course was undergoing construction, it actually unleashed a skunk infestation. So uh, smelling the stench of Donald Trump well before he became president. <laughs> but while I was living in, in Throgsneck Houses, witnessing the conditions get worse every day, uh, the city had invested more than $100 million in capital in a golf course for Donald Trump. And you know, I remember asking myself, what does it say about our society that we're willing to invest more in a golf course than in the homes of low-income people of color. Uh, it just felt like that was a fundamental misordering and misplacement of our priorities. Yeah, you know, um, I just want to, um, you know, pu push on that a little bit because I think you, you, when you were in the city council, you know, you played a really important uh, role and in a huge role in doing something that many of us, like, you know, Kirk and I, who have been both in affordable housing for over 30 years, have been trying to do, which is to sort of get the city of New York to recognize that the federal government is not coming to the rescue and that the city needs to start to put forward solutions. I mean, you played such an instrumental role in elevating that, that voice to say, time is now. We can't, we can't wait any longer for resources to flow that haven't flowed for decades. And so can you just talk a little bit about that evolution and, and the importance of the step that was taken to sort of say, listen, it's time for us to start doing things here that, that we haven't done before? Well, I ran for public office because I felt, as you did, that there was no one in elected office who was telling the story of public housing. Yeah. There was no full appreciation for the centrality of NYCHA, the centrality of public housing to the affordability of New York City. Uh, and so I was on a mission to be the leading champion of public housing. I was on the winning side of the speaker's race in 2013. And people asked me, you know, why did you not request to be the housing and buildings chair or the land use chair? Right. And I said, because I went into public office with a singular mission, which was to advocate for the more than half a million people who call NYCHA housing home. Uh, and when I became the chair of the public housing committee, I held the first ever city council committee in a public housing development. Uh, I partnered with Mark Traeger. We brought a city council hearing to a development in Coney Island that had been devastated by Superstorm Sandy. You know, FEMA had withheld the funds for more than a year. Uh, and there were a number of developments that were operating on temporary boilers that kept breaking down during what was at the time one of the coldest winters in recorded history. And normally when you have a city council hearing, it's at city hall. We had it at a NYCHA development. And normally you have the agency testify first. I said, why not have the residents themselves testify? Because if you allow the agencies to go first, by the time the residents have the opportunity to testify, everyone leaves. And so I felt it was important to provide the residents with a platform that would amplify their voice. Uh, and there was one senior citizen who testified that she was so cold in her apartment that she left her oven on, risking exposure to carbon monoxide. And, and these stories had a powerful impact in publicizing 
the humanitarian crisis in public housing in the wake of Superstorm Sandy. And it, it got on the radar of Chuck Schumer. Next day, NYCHA received a call from Chuck Schumer's office telling, how can we be helpful? And within a month of the hearing, within a month of the phone call, FEMA finally agreed to release $3 billion to NYCHA, which is the largest FEMA grant in the history of New York City. And for me, the lesson learned is that the power of elected office, especially at the local level, lies not in the limitations of legislation, but in the possibilities of oversight, the possibilities of advocacy, is that as an elected official, even though I'm often preempted by state and federal law when I was in the city council, there was no limit to my ability to tell the story of public housing. Congressman, one of the one of the biggest challenges I think we've had with public housing historically is that the city, the state, and the federal government don't always or haven't always been on the same page. You were a city councilman, now you're a congressman. Could you talk about what it would look like for the federal government, state of New York, and New York City to be on the same page in terms of moving forward on the capital improvements and improved operations at NYCHA? In my view, there should be a permanent budget item for NYCHA uh, in both the state and city budget. There should be a dedicated uh, capital stream uh, because as you said before, and it amazes me that there's no, that historically there's been no appreciation for the central role that NYCHA plays. You know, NYCHA is the largest provider of affordable housing in the country. It's a singular institution in the life, not only of New York City, but of the United States. It's a grand experiment in affordable housing on a scale that that our country's never seen before. It's unique in size. If you were to take the 10 largest public housing authorities, NYCHA is larger than the rest of the nine combined. And NYCHA alone makes up 15% of the public housing stock nationwide. It's unique in population. It's larger than most large cities in America. I often point out that if NYCHA were a city, it would be the largest city of low-income black and brown Americans in the country. Uh, But most important, it's unique in affordability. You know, all of us have heard the refrain that most of the affordable housing we create is unaffordable to the lowest income. And that's because, not because of AMI as commonly said, but because of a lack of federal subsidy. Public housing is uniquely affordable. And a public housing unit, once lost, is gone forever. It is deeply and irreplaceably affordable. Uh, And that's why we have to preserve it as an indispensable safety net of affordable housing for those in greatest need. And the city and the state government have a vested interest in doing so. Well, and I think I I think that, you know, that part is, I think, something that, you know, when I was in when I was in city government, there were those of us who were trying to to get public housing more on the radar of city housing plans and city housing strategies and city housing policy. And it has it was for decades viewed as something that was separate and a part of a larger housing policy and a larger housing strategy. And I think through your work and, you know, through the work of others, and, and honestly, you know, you, you mentioned it, Superstorm Sandy helped create a moment where that could start to coalesce uh, because of the devastation at so many of the, uh, of the housing authority properties. But, you know, capital commitments, which I agree with, are really important from both the city and the state level. Continuing, and I know you have been doing this, and so maybe you can talk a little bit about continuing to push, because the other side of that equation is the operating subsidies that come from the federal government 
and the capital budget dollars that come from the federal government and continuing to advocate that those, we had a chance, there was an effort around Build Back Better, we had a chance to see some some of that increased and, and hopefully we can continue together to advocate to get there. And so if you could just talk a little bit about your new role as as a congressman and, and how you're continuing to advocate for federal resources for, for public housing. Well, in the House, we passed the Build Back Better Act, yep. which allocate more than $60 billion for public housing, and almost $40 billion of which would go specifically to public housing, which I fully support, and I was one, one of the strongest supporters in the House. Um, having said that, I will share with you a concern about whether the Housing Authority has the capacity yeah. to spend $40 billion, and that is not a question that we as policymakers have thought through carefully. Yeah. I think a second concern I would raise is we cannot pursue a funding framework that assumes permanent democratic control of the federal government. Right. Eventually, Republicans will take control of the House or the Senate or the presidency or all of the above. Right. And we'll move in the direction of defunding public housing. Uh, and we have to have a new funding framework that can adapt to the vicissitudes of American politics. And so that's why I've been more supportive of RAD yeah. than many of my colleagues. You know, the, the constituency for traditional public housing is narrow. It's only urban America. It's only the Democratic Party. It's only the public sector. Whereas the constituency for Section 8 is much broader. It's both the public and private sector. It's both urban and rural America. It's both Democratic and Republican. And a broader constituency will mean a more sustainable funding stream over time. So I feel like we have to be, we have to recognize that an infusion of federal funding, while critical, is only a short-term solution. Right. We have to fundamentally rethink the framework for funding public housing, whether it be RAD or the public trust or a combination of various tools. But housing authorities through public-private partnerships need to have the ability to access the same financing tools that are available to the rest of the affordable housing industry. Yeah, I mean, as you know so well, right? I mean, what you just described, the the Rental Assistance Demonstration Program, that's the reason why the Obama administration created it, was to begin to move operating subsidies from the Section 9 only funded through public housing to um, be more like uh, the the larger Section 8 program. But that has not been without controversy. And, um, you know, so maybe we can shift gears a little bit and talk about that by talking about, you know, you're holding a hearing at at your first hearing at the public housing in Coney Island is, uh, you know, in my view, like the beginning of recognizing that there's this deep-seated distrust between the residents and the housing authority and, frankly, anybody that's advocating for solutions. And, you know, there's been some efforts to, to do that. But maybe you can talk a little bit about the need to rebuild that, that trust and, and how the rental assistance demonstration program can be perhaps part of that along with some other solutions. Yeah, so for me, the, the key to building trust with residents is not to hold more community engagement sessions. Right. It's to fundamentally improve the living conditions of public housing residents. And if you, if you rely solely on appropriations, then you're only going to make improvements at the margins. Like maybe you'll replace one boiler every 10 years. RAD is the only program that I know of that leads to comprehensive rehabilitation of public housing developments. Right. The first example of RAD was Ocean Bay in Southeast Queens. Ocean Bay yep. saw hundreds of millions of dollars in capital renovation from a variety of sources, which would have been unthinkable 
under the traditional financing model of Section 9. So for me, the results speak for themselves. I, I am not an ideologue. I'm a pragmatist. I tend to pursue what works, and RAD has been shown to work. And the concerns about privatization are ill-founded and ignore the workings of affordable housing. Like, I, I never thought I would live in a world where Section 8, which is one of the most powerful affordable housing programs we have, would become controversial. Yeah. Uh, the vast majority of affordable housing in America is publicly subsidized but privately operated. And, and so NYCHA, to address the concerns about perceived privatization, developed the public trust, which would have the benefit of accessing public-private sources of financing without the political cost of perceived privatization. And even with that proposal, NYCHA is accused of privatization. Yeah. The, the opposition, to me, is just propagandistic and bad faith, and you're never going to persuade the ideologues that anything that envisions a role for the private sector must be fundamentally evil. Uh, and that's a proposition that I reject. Congressman, one of the things I've always observed being involved in affordable housing and community organizing, community development is the people who live in properties that are deteriorating, who are struggling with the conditions you grew up in, often are more pragmatic than activists who are unaffected. And so when I don't have a family member living in a public housing authority project where I'm not living there myself, my ability to be an ideologue is easy because I'm not impacted day in and day out. But if I'm living in that circumstance or have a loved one who lives in that circumstance, my ability to be pragmatic is enhanced. So I really want to see solutions. I'm not okay standing on principle with no change. And so I think from my perspective, having grown up in public housing, it gives you a level of pragmatism that perhaps others lack or don't seek. For me, the DSA white savior complex has done enormous harm to public housing. It's unconstructive. The smartest model that I've seen was pursued, and I'm forgetting the development, it's either was, was Chelsea, Elliott, or Fulton, where NYCHA actually empowered the residents yeah. to negotiate the agreement with the developer, to choose the developer Correct. and negotiate the agreement. That was brilliant. I think it's brilliant politics, it's brilliant policy, because it's based on a recognition that no one knows the needs of public housing more than the residents themselves. And if the residents are negotiating these agreements, it discredits the opposition. Like, who are you to lecture the residents who live here on, on how, should, how they should live and, and what, what kind of future public housing should have? So that, what, what was achieved in, what was pioneered in Chelsea, should not only be a model, it should be the standard yeah. across the city and hopefully across the country. And what's, what's, so, what's so incredible to me about, about that, because I, I completely agree with how powerful that is, is that it's not that hard. You know, yeah. when, when, when you, it's easier, when, when, it's easier, but you know, cause when you, when you go, when you go to do one of these, um, rental assistance demonstration program projects that the housing authority is, is leading after you're selected, you end up doing dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of meetings with, with resident leadership. There's literally no reason why you can't start that process earlier and make that part of the selection process. And that's what they did at Fulton Chelsea. And, and it's really powerful. I want to step back one second and just be sure our listeners who are not 
uh, housing wonks like yeah. the three of us understand the difference between Section 8 and Section 9. And so uh, I'm going to do a quick version, and then, Congressman, you can correct me where, I'm, where, where, I, where I make a mistake. Section 9 is true public housing funding. It is congressionally appropriated, and it is a program that is where the operating subsidy that helps effectively pay the bills to run the buildings is determined by a formula that is based on expenses and based on the cost of operating a building. And it can only go up or down based on federal appropriation, whereas Section 8 is a more um, is, is a tool that's used by the private ownership all the time. Um, and there's a process for determining the fair market rent based on the rent in those communities. And that determines the amount of subsidy that the housing authorities or that the uh, owners of the properties would receive. And so that shift really allows NYCHA to generate significantly more operating revenue that allows them to borrow money to be able to pay for the capital improvements uh, in those properties. It's complicated. It's hard for people to really understand, like all things in government. Uh, it's also simple. It means more money for NYCHA. It means more money for NYCHA is, is what it means. That's correct. What ultimately should matter is not the provision of federal law, whether it's Section 8 or Section 9. Uh, what should matter is not whether it's publicly or privately operated. What should matter is whether it's deeply affordable to those in greatest need. Yep. Um, and Section 8 preserves deep affordability. Uh, and if you convert these units with TPV vouchers, then it provides NYCHA with a massive revenue stream for the operations of public housing. That's right. The tenant protection vouchers are in place and are put in place to ensure that public housing residents can stay in their units and they recognize the higher level of renovation that's needed at those units. So they pay an even higher payment standard. But it's important also to be clear that it means more revenue for NYCHA, but it doesn't necessarily mean higher rent for any individual resident. The amount of money that an individual resident pays is still calculated the exact same way. It's all about the subsidy that's being provided by the federal government to the public housing authority. Congressman, I think I think one of the told aspects of the rental assistance demonstration program has been other services that come along with it. And so I think one of the things that we need to focus on in the affordable housing world is not just doing affordable housing, but what I call affordable housing plus. Are you creating job opportunities for the people who live in public housing and in the community? Are you delivering needed social services? Are you delivering needed health care? In addition to improving the living conditions immediately by providing capital improvements and providing ongoing service money in terms of being able to make the buildings run better, could you talk a little bit about what are the other things you see as important things to focus on as we execute rental assistance demonstration program projects throughout the city? Look, your question touches on the unique value that a housing adds, affordable housing development adds to the city. It's the only industry that creates housing, jobs, and tax revenue, which is a powerful combination. But this is an area where we have failed miserably. We have failed to demonstrate to NYCHA residents that these projects can create jobs for them, can create apprenticeship opportunities for them, create contracts for businesses owned by NYCHA residents. One of the most common complaints heard among NYCHA leaders is centered around Section 3. Uh, and I guarantee the NYCHA residents know more about it than I do. <laughs> 
Uh, they can quote it verbatim, but this is understandably an obsession among the NYCHA leaders. And we have to figure out how to make the economic stimulus that is public housing work for the residents who live there, whether it be by creating jobs or providing their MWBEs with contracts or creating apprenticeship opportunities, because residents do not feel the, the economic impact of these massive investments that we've made. Yeah, no, I mean, that's totally, I, I think, frankly, the entire affordable housing industry at some level has failed in that because I think that even non-public housing development, residents and neighbors are against development because they don't actually see yeah. the benefit of it. And I think we all need to work hard to figure out what is that telling us and how do we do, how do we, how do we do that differently? You know, we only have a couple a couple of minutes left, and I think we wanted to to wrap up by getting you to talk a little bit about you know the you mentioned it earlier, public housing trust, um, yeah. which is a proposal that has been put forth by the housing authority to create a, a new public entity controlled by the housing authority that would allow for for more of these more operating subsidy to flow from the federal government uh, into more units. And the thing that I, I, I'm, I'm interested in, because you talked about it a little bit earlier, it, rather than getting real wonky on that specific proposal, the big challenge with that proposal right now is the acrimony in the conversation. And, and I'm struggling um, in the conversations that I've had. I had several with leaders um, uh, in the state legislature yesterday. I'm struggling with how do we get how do we move to the next level on this conversation around solutions? How do we get people to the table to have an honest conversation about what works, what brings more money to public housing, as you talked about, and start to be able to, to really coalesce around not just the rental assistance demonstration program, but other solutions that are going to bring more revenue? Because that dialogue has really broken down, and a lot of leaders, not all, but a lot of leaders are saying we need more voices in the conversation. And so I'd, I'd love your thoughts about how we bring more voices to the conversation. The residents of public housing that have experienced the renovations uh, that, that happen in RAD, who no longer have to worry about whether their heat works or whether their toilet works or whether their kitchen works, how do we start to coalesce that group of people together in some way? Maybe that's an answer. I don't know. There might be others. But I'd love to hear your, your thoughts about that. Look, I have a rule. Life is short. And I never reason with people who refuse to be reasoned with. You're never going to persuade the ideologues in the city council or in the state legislature or even in the United States Congress. Yeah. You know, the, the state and city and the federal government have to do what's right for public housing. What's been shown to work effectively is the Chelsea Elliott model, is if we're going to create a public trust, we have to assure the residents that there's going to be ample resident representation on the board of the public trust and that residents will have the authority, the power to negotiate development deals that affect their particular developments. I feel like if you encode resident engagement, resident empowerment in the DNA of the public trust, it will garner more support among the people who matter the most, the residents of public housing. So I would build on what works and Chelsea Elliott strikes me as the way forward. One of the other challenges you mentioned is capacity whether you're talking about the rental assistance demonstration program or the uh, public housing trust, the amount of work, the sheer volume of capital improvements that needs to happen is going to require a lot of contractors and developers who aren't currently involved in, a, in public housing to desire to be involved in it. And so from my perspective, 
Yeah, that includes big companies. But one of the things that I think is important, and Raphael and I have been supportive of, and I'm sure you are, is really creating a stable of women and minority-led companies who are fledgling companies and maybe fledgling construction companies and development companies now, but to grow, to use the NYCHA capital improvement pipeline for them to be able to grow their business and have a seat at the table in the way they haven't been able to in the real estate industry in New York to date. And I think there's good success and bad success. And if we if we improve all the NYCHA housing, but women and minority-led businesses are on the sidelines like they've been for the last many decades, then I think we've had only limited success. I want to get your thoughts on that. Well, that's one of the arguments for the public trust. The procurement process for public housing authorities is too rigid. And a public trust would have greater flexibility to create a framework for better, faster, and cheaper repairs. But it also would have the greater ability to create opportunities for MWBEs. For me, the, the gold standard of MWBE empowerment appears to be the school construction authority. Yeah. Uh, the school construction authority mentors MWBEs over time. Right? You, you don't want to start with a massive contract that sets these small businesses up for failure. You, you start small and then you grow the contracts as their capacity grows over time. And, and mentoring is built into the SCA's model, the SCA's approach to MWBEs. And I imagine if NYCHA had a public trust, it would have the same flexibility to pursue that same model of mentoring MWBs. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, as as uh, as usual, you you nailed it. I mean, that that the mentoring process, the growing process, is really fundamental to to driving success for MWBs and allowing them to grow their businesses in a in a rational way. You know, I I I think the the new success of the Fulton Chelsea process, I think, really does give us a way forward. It gives us a, a, a difference in how. How, how residents feel about it. And they picked a pretty big developer in that one. So it's not, it's not, it's not like they don't have the, the capacity to think about what, what really matters. And, and that's why, you know, that's why we, you know, we were so happy that you agreed to be on the housing problem because you bring that practicality, that sense of how do we actually move things forward and provide solutions. And it's a big part of the reason why Kirk and I, been, we've been friends for, for 30 years, decided to do this because we wanted to try to create room for people who are pragmatists, who are focused on fixing the ceilings and fixing the toilets and fixing the, the boilers and aren't really caught up in, in the ideology. And so um, we really, really appreciate you being here and, and taking the time away from your busy schedule. There's a lot going on in the world. I'm sure it's very busy down there. And and your perspective is is really refreshing and, and positive, and, and we appreciate you know, you're taking the time to share that with us. I'm honored to be here, and I feel like we have the tools to solve the humanitarian crisis in public housing. What's lacking in our politics is pragmatism, and hopefully I can bring that to bear. Yeah, well, we, we, we completely agree and, um, and, and hope so. And hope so too. And we're going to try to do our part here on on the housing problem. Congressman, thank you for your time and and your insight. It's valuable and important. Absolutely. Thank you, sir. Take care. Take care. Uh, Wow. I mean, Congressman Torres was such a great guest. So, so insightful. You know, obviously his experience growing up in public housing, being in the running for city council, being elected to city council, being the chair of the public housing committee. He brings, you know, such a wealth of knowledge and, and it's, 
you know, his his acknowledgement that the crisis in public housing today is not just a crisis of NYCHA, of the New York City Housing Authority. It's a humanitarian crisis. It's uh, it's people in this country living in conditions that they should never have to live in. We know what the solutions are. We need to be focused on the solutions and not on rhetoric. And I think he led us down a path around resident engagement that's that's really, really critical for, for the future of public housing. You know, the resident engagement aspect of what happened at the Chelsea Fulton Houses, which is a process that Jessica Katz, when she was executive director at uh, Citizens Housing and Planning Council, uh, CHPC, led along with the team over there, uh, is based on a model that was pioneered in London, and it's made a huge difference in having residents just feel in control of the process, having their perspectives represented, and the idea that that's going to be the standard going forward is really exciting because I think, as the congressman said, it really changes the narrative, puts residents in the driver's seat, and is something that we should see having an impact not only in Chelsea Fulton Houses, but on housing authority developments that go through the rental assistance demonstration program across the city. Yeah, I'm, I think it's, I agree, it's, it's really exciting. And it really is, as simple as it sounds, it really is the foundation for, for a solution and for the future of public housing. And as you and I know, in, in spending time with public housing residents, they are the most practical people. They just want their units fixed. They want their homes to be the quality homes that they deserve. And so um, really exciting. And, and we're really lucky in New York to have, you know, somebody like Congressman Torres uh, representing uh, the city and, and fighting for public housing. You know, th- this episode has been incredible and it's hard to imagine we can top it. But the next episode is really going to focus on the intersection between affordable housing, race and capitalism, I think the role that capitalism has played in creating some of the problems we see is one of the reasons why there's been a lot of pushback on some of the solutions we discussed today and um, in other areas of housing. So we really look forward to a conversation about race, capitalism, and affordable housing in our next podcast. Yeah, it's going to be great. Look forward to it. Thank you for listening to The Housing Problem. I'm Rafael Sestero. I'm Kirk Goodrich. And please subscribe and share The Housing Problem. The more we explore The Housing Problem together, the better chance we have of finding the real solutions. I'm taking my shoes off so I don't bang them on the floor. I'm literally doing it so I don't bang them on the floor when I'm fidgeting. My mother told me never to fidget. It didn't work, bro. <laughs> yeah, my grandmother tried to get me to eat beets. That didn't work either? No. Uh, yeah. That's all right. At least you don't put uh, barbecue sauce on everything anymore, man. We're fine now, man. <laughs> the palate is too refined for that. Oh, that's great. Thank you, Rachel. Did you get all that for the outro? Uh, yeah, right. Yeah. Totally. That was credit. Of course. 100%. 100%. Is that what it's called, an outro? That's good. I like that, Tom. That's good. That's great. Made it up. Produced by Dan Morfitt. Executive producers Raphael Sestero, Kirk Goodrich, Eric Bederman, Greg Wagner, Andrew Zimmer. The Housing Problem is a top content production for Marino PR.